morning. morning. It's great to be with you today. I appreciate so much Dr. Bridges inviting us to be with you this morning. We've looked forward to this some time. We had an opportunity to share with you back um, last April, I think, on a Wednesday night. Wow, has it it blown by, huh? It was a year ago yesterday that Dr. Bridges and the board of trustees at Louisiana College risked their reputation and called me to be president. (laughs) So we're earning their trust daily. And uh, let me ask, uh, we have some Louisiana College alums here this morning. Amen. Many that wish they were. And uh, some of them maybe have children or grandchildren with us. If you don't, they should be. Uh, We're grateful for how God has worked at the college. And the time we've been there, we're blessed to be a part of it. We're about to enter our 30th year in administration and Christian higher education. And continually mindful of why God's called us to do that and be a part of that as we see lives changed. Our vision at Louisiana College is to prepare graduates and to transform lives, to prepare students to go wherever God is leading them into all the cultural shaping venues of the world and to have the skill set to be equipped to do critical thinking, to do analytical reasoning, to be problem solvers for the kingdom. We have a wonderful pre-med program pre-law, teacher education, business, Christian studies. And shortly after we arrived, Dr. Bridges and Dr. Knapper, who's a board member uh, from this area as well here in Ruston, and he's uh, administrator at Louisiana Tech, was able to help us to launch an idea that uh, we were able to utilize back in South Carolina, the school I was with before. We partnered with Clemson University in some pre-engineering programs. And Dr. Les Geis, your president at Louisiana Tech, was warm and welcoming and worked with us. And uh, we've launched now a pre-engineering program at Louisiana College where students can come to Louisiana College and get a three-year degree in math or chemistry or biology and can matriculate directly into Louisiana Tech where they can, in two more years, have an engineering degree. So we're looking forward to sending missionaries to Louisiana Tech. Of course, I've heard there are more Baptists at Louisiana Tech than there are all at any other Baptist school in America is what I've heard, and I don't doubt it, uh, but uh, we're just grateful for that opportunity. And, you know, we, you're partners with us. You're with us. You're with the school. We are your college. We are your Baptist school. You're one and only in the state, and you're part of us through your prayers, through sending us students, and we hope you'll send us more, through sending us great trustees like your pastor, Dr. Reggie Bridges, who's serving as our vice chairman of our board and grateful that you allow him to give some time to us and to help us with his fabulous leadership skills. And then you're with us through the cooperative program. You know, as Baptists since 1925, we've come together collectively to support missional causes, whether through education or through health care, missional causes home and abroad, and we're a part of that, and you're a part of us. So when lives are changed on our campus, you are there. And so we thank you, and we're grateful that we could be with you today. I I come from a family of um, ministers and teachers and business folk. Uh, In my family now, there's just, uh, my dad was a pastor. He had a brother that was a pastor, cousins that were pastors. They've all passed on, and they're with the Lord now. And so in my direct family, it's just me and a first cousin who still are ministry, or do ministry, or conduct ministry, or ordain ministers, and he's just recently retired. Because the rest of my relatives are a bunch of reprobates. <laughs> Except for one, my cousin Vernon, Vernon T. Brewer IV, over in Waycross, Georgia. Anybody know where Waycross, Georgia is? 
Everybody been to Waycross, Georgia. Do you know why they call it Waycross, Georgia? Yeah, because it's Waycross, Georgia. That's right. He's a good fella. He's, a, he's not. He said, don't call him an ex-Marine. He's a former Marine. And now a farmer. And he and Marianne and, and, the, and their precious three girls live there in, in Waycross, Georgia. And he'll call me if he sees something on the television or as he calls it, the interconnect. And uh, he'll ask me a question, Reggie, about biblical matters, theological matters. And he, oh, about a year or so ago, he called me, and I was getting ready. I was on an airplane, getting ready to take a flight, and they're about to close the gate. And you know when they do that, you can't talk anymore on your cell phones. And then I saw his name come up on the phone, Vernon. I said, oh, my, what's Vernon got going on today? And he said, i got to talk to you, Rick. I said, what's the problem? I don't have but a few minutes. What is it? He said, well, someone dropped off at my house a magazine called The Watchtower. Yeah, and they had a little post-it note on it that said, I'll be about to talk to you about that soon. I said, Vernon, I don't have a whole lot of time to talk with you about this, but let me just tell you, you don't want none of that. Uh, I said, there are a lot of theological differences we have as Christians and believers. And I said, and I knew this would get his attention, I said, Vernon, they don't even believe in being patriotic. He said, that's enough for me. So it was about a week later, this nice lady drove up to their house, pulls up the minivan, up the driveway, comes up the sidewalk with her briefcase, rings the doorbell. Vernon looks at Marianne and says, it's time. She's here. And so they let the nice lady in. They said, oh, ma'am, it's so great to have you in our home. We welcome you. And she said, well, let me just get to what I came to talk to you about here. He said, oh, ma'am, just wait a minute. Before you get to what's in that briefcase, I want to just let you know what our family does. We... We love America, and we love this country so much that uh, right over here and right over there, over the fireplace, was a 10 by 6 American flag. And they went over, and he says, we, we love our country so much that daily we pledge allegiance to the flag. So there, Mary Ann and the three girls, they stood and pledged allegiance to the flag. <laughs> nice lady, she joined in. So they got through. She said, oh, that's wonderful, sir. Let me get to what I came to talk to you about in my briefcase. I said, oh, ma'am, just a minute. I want you to know. We love this nation so much that we, every morning, we sing the national anthem. Now, he and Marianne, the three girls, they are wonderful. They sing an a cappella. That means without the piano. So they sing, they sing it a cappella. They're beautiful voices. And so they tuned up, and they sang all three verses. Yeah. So 11 minutes later... He looks at her and says, now, ma'am, what is it you exactly came to talk to us about today? She says, sir, I just got to let you know, in my 23 years of selling Avon, I've never met a family <laughs> as patriotic as yours. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so uh, pray for Vernon. He was ready. <laughs> he was just the uh, wrong time. I grew up in the Carolinas. Uh, John mentioned we came over. I, we were in Charleston. Kathy and I were in Charleston Southern for 28 years before the Lord uprooted us and brought us here and, uh, for a purpose. And we recognize that all that we learned there through those years in administration and as a professor and uh, that we're able to utilize here. Uh, but I grew up in the Carolinas, North and South Carolina. So I'm wearing my North Carolina Tar Heel blue shirt today since we beat Duke last night. And we're proud of that. But... Uh, in Sanford, North Carolina, where my dad pastored a church, in the seventh grade in Lee County Schools, back in the day when we went to junior high, some of you remember that, 
Well, what they did in the, in the close of the seventh grade is they would bring us all in and show us a series of movies. And we didn't have videos back in those days. You remember the big movie, and it made the sound. It'd always break in the middle, and they'd have to fix it and get it going again. And these movies we figured out, we didn't know at the time, but as I look back, I knew they were intended to get our attention about certain subjects, certain issues. So along about March, they brought us in and showed us this movie. And in this movie, there were these kids, they were at a house, they were having a party. And all of a sudden, one of the guys, he's kind of the leader, he goes back to a back room and he finds some alcohol and he starts drinking and he gets drunk and all his friends drink and he gets really drunk and he's really sick and he passes out. And they call, you know, the hospital, and the ambulance comes and picks him up. They stick tubes up his nose, needles in his veins. His mom and daddy come to the hospital, and they cry. So we thought the moral of that movie was, you know, never, never drink, because if you ever do, they're going to stick tubes up your nose, needles in your veins. And then it was about, oh, a month later, they brought us back and showed us another movie. This time, they didn't think we were smart, but it was the same actors. And in this movie... They all once again have a party at this guy's house, and they all go to the back room, and this fellow has some pills, and he starts taking these pills, and it's, you know, illegal drugs, and he's using them, and he passes out, and what do they call the ambulance? Ambulance comes, pick him up, take him to the hospital, tubes up his nose, needles in his veins. Mom and daddy come to the hospital, they cry. And we thought again, the moral of that story is don't do drugs, because if you do drugs, they're going to stick tubes up your nose, needles in your veins, your mom and daddy going to cry. I mean, we were so convicted to not take drugs that many of us wouldn't even take an aspirin after that one. And then they brought us in and did something that I, I'm glad they, they did away with. This was just cruel. As when we were 13-year-olds, 12 and 13-year-olds. They brought around and passed in this tray, Reggie. I think it was the old brittled lung of some poor fellow who must have smoked camel cigarettes for 60 years. You know, and they made us touch it. Yeah, we had to touch it. Now, we thought tomorrow that story is never smoke because one day kids in the seventh grade going to touch your lung. <laughs> so. But you know what happened. You know, by the time we're in high school, friends that I lost some friends who had overdosed to drugs. Practically everybody had tried alcohol or gotten to their parents' cabinet or something like that. And then uh, smoking, that was just common in North Carolina. <laughs> you know, Tobacco Road. So what happened? What, what changed? You see, how could we be so sure that in that moment that that just wasn't right? How could we be so sure that that wasn't the decision we should make? I mean, did things change or did, did we change? I mean, the question I want to ask you this morning is, how could you be so convinced that something was wrong? Why could we be so convinced that something was deadly, it was unhealthy, it was unwise? Why would we be so sure at that point in our lives, and then as time drifted by, what we begin to believe changed, or maybe not what we believe changed, but our actions did no longer bore witness with what we believed? Why? What happened? Well, I think what happened to my group in the seventh grade is what happens to many of us today. I mean, it's the same reason... Your pastor can stand here week after week and can, and can share the gospel and can challenge you and I to go out and share the gospel. And we sit here and say, amen, pastor, that's right. Preach the word. We believe it. We walk out, shake his hand, so that's the most wonderful sermon we ever heard. And we're going to go out and share the gospel this week. And then we go, go out and share the gospel. I mean, it's the same reason that 
He can stand here week after week and he can talk about fathers, how our fathers, we need to spend more time with our kids and we get convicted about that. And we say, you're right, pastor, amen. We give him verbal and mental assent, shake his hand, and yet we walk out of here and don't change what we actually do. I mean, it's the reason why he could challenge us to keep our minds pure. Keep our minds pure. We go, I'm convicted about that. And we walk out and we don't change our behavior. Some of you may have made an overarching commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet today you're not living out that commitment. It's the same reason why your pastor can talk about how we need to keep our marriages strong, and yet there may be some here today that are contemplating leaving your spouse for whatever reason. Something changed. I mean, it's the very reason that we hear sermons on prayer, and we're sure and we're convinced that prayer is the key to revival. We say amen. We clap, we walk out of here, we shake the pastor's hand, and yet we do not change our prayer habits. What happened to my friends in the seventh grade is the same thing that happens to us, and that is this. We have preferences. We have very few true convictions. We have preferences. We know what we ought to do. We know what is right. We know what we've been taught. We know what we've believed all our lives. But we develop very few true, real convictions. Let me help you understand the difference quickly this morning. Let me, give you the, let me give you the difference between a preference and a conviction. A preference is based solely on emotion. It's based on emotion, but a conviction is based upon a principle. A preference is oriented towards the here and now, what's going on in the environment around me right now, whereas a conviction is oriented towards the future. It asks this fundamental question, Where will this thought life, where will this behavior, where will this action ultimately lead? Where will I be five, ten years from now if I continue to practice this sort of behavior? A preference is influenced by what others think, peer pressure. Peer pressure is not solely for young people. We feel it all the way, I think, until we pass away. A conviction is concerned primarily with what God thinks. A preference is what everyone else is for, but a conviction asks this question. What is pleasing to God? A preference is abandoned for the sake of immediate pleasure. You're just not buying into that. You're not convinced. It's not all in. But a conviction is regarded as the means of attaining true success and joy. You recognize that the reward is greater than the pleasure. And finally, a preference is convenience-oriented. It's convenience-oriented, whereas a conviction is sacrifice-oriented. There are a lot of places in God's Word today we could go and look at examples of men and women who would illustrate what it looks like to be a man or woman of conviction. But I want to take your attention to the book of Daniel. Find that there, Daniel chapter 1. We'll look at verse 8, and then we'll look over in chapter 3 in just a moment. And as you're finding that, As you're turning there, I want you to think about your own life. If someone were to hear all that you hear, watch all that you watch, listen to what you say, listen what you give verbal and mental assent to daily, would they summarize you as a man or woman of conviction or a man or woman who just lives by preferences? When they put it all together. Well, here's the situation. Look with me at Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Let me read that for you. But Daniel, 
made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Just a bit of background. This is during the Babylonian captivity. The children of Israel, once again, are disobedient. And God is allowing this to happen and to be scattered. And Nebuchadnezzar, it was his style that when he would go in and take over a land, he would find the sharpest minds, the sharpest scientists, mathematicians, those that he and, the, and those that were of the literature and the rhetoric, and he would take them and call them out of the community, and he would bring them into his household, his palace, so that he could somehow assimilate them into the culture. Daniel knows what's going on. He's a stranger in a strange land. He doesn't belong here. And yet he's God's man. He's a man after God's own heart. And there's something different about him. And he'd already made up his mind that whatever was offered, in his mind, this is a big deal, what the king is offering him. Because he knew that this had been offered before idols. In Daniel's heart and mind, this was a major issue. And for him as a man of conviction, he said, I'm not going to do it. And, you know, there was some conversation, and Nebuchadnezzar said, okay, we're going to look after you in 10 days and see how you look. And of course, you know, 10 days later, he was fitter than the others who ascribed to the king's diet plan. But he's forced to make a decision. He's forced to make a decision. You know, let me ask you this question this morning. Have you made up your mind about anything? Have you made up your mind lately about anything? Is there any error in your life you've made up your mind that regardless of what the consequences are, regardless of what's offered, regardless of what's threatened, you will not compromise? You see, God is not out looking for influential people that he can make faithful. No, God is looking for men and women of conviction, of character, of conscience, of integrity. And he, God, wants to take those men and women and raise them to levels of influence. That's what excites me about working with college students. That's why I have a drive and a passion to help. I've been working with college-age students for 35 years. That's why I love it. Because we have an opportunity to help them see that God will take you as a man or woman of conviction, of integrity, of conscience, of character. And he, God, will raise you to that level of influence to impact your world, to impact the world for the kingdom. And to be able to help shape and mold and direct students in that manner, working with faculty and working with others. You know, we, what I love about God's Word is that this is not a book necessarily about people that had it all together. It's not about all the wealthy folk. No, it's about a lot of folk you, like you and I who are just normal, everyday people who had made mistakes, who had sinned, who had missed the mark, shepherds, fishermen, everyday people, workers, servants, and God looked down on that day in that place in Babylon. He said, there is that man. There is that man of conviction, Daniel. And you watch what happens when you read the book of Daniel. See, towards the end of the second chapter, because of his faithfulness, Nebuchadnezzar's cluing in, and he notices there's something different. And you see this through God's word replete. Once again, God raises men and women to levels of influence when they're men and women of conviction, of character conscience of integrity and because of that he convinces the king he says i've got three other buddies 
who he had renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he said, these guys are worthy as well. And because of Daniel's leadership, and because he's exhibited this, he's now at a level of influence. Well, then you move to chapter 3. The story continues on, and we know this story well. And Nebuchadnezzar's got a new problem. Because he's gathered all these people from all these different countries, they're all worshiping their own gods, Uh, It is pluralism gone amok, and he's jealous, and some of his inside guys convince him, well, you know, what we need to do is build for you your own image. Let everybody worship whatever they want to worship, but you will be above all, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, being the narcissist as he was, he bought into that deal. A 90-foot-tall, 9-foot-wide image. He said, guys, you can worship whatever you want. Do whatever you want. But when you hear the royal band play, and you see it there in chapter 3, it lists all the instruments and everything. When you hear them play the royal music, stop what you're doing, and you give homage to me and to my image. Fall down at the idol. Well, there were some guys who had made up their mind. They weren't going to do it. And they were right up there with the king. They were somebody, again, because of Daniel's faithfulness. They're there. And some of the guys clued into this who wanted to get the king's attention and favor. And so what did they do? They turned them in. (laughs) Don't you love that person in the workplace? They turned them in. Ah, look, look, some of your top fellows, they're not bowing. Brought him in. He has a little conversation with him there, and we see that conversation unfold in chapter 3. Look with me in verse uh, 11. It says, Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, he got really mad in rage and anger, gave orders to bring those guys. Then he says, these men, he, he says to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 15, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I've set up for you. Now, verse 15, now if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, treason, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, fall down and worship the image that I've made. Very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the, the fire of the furnace of the blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? So Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, verse 16, they replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. The message version probably says something like this, we've already made up our mind, dude. It doesn't matter. You're wasting your breath. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able. Isn't that a wonderful thought today to know? That the God we serve is able Able to what? Able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But here's where the men of conviction stand tall. Verse 18. But even if he does not. Even if he does not what? Even if he does not deliver us from the fire, we're not going to bow. We've made up our mind. Men of conviction, men of character, 
men of conscience, men of integrity. They weighed the odds. That keeping their conviction and losing power and influence and prestige, losing that was more important than compromising their convictions and keeping all the world had to offer. They realized that eternally speaking, they had far more to lose by compromising than they had to gain. Is that the way you think? These three men decided that they had far more to lose by compromising than by maintaining their conviction. It's interesting, they go down, Nebuchadnezzar goes to check on his char-grilled Hebrew fellows, and he finds that they're not three but four, and the fourth, he said, likened unto an angel, and it looks like they're having a worship experience in there. He says, get them out of the fire. And you know the fire had been turned up seven times hotter, so hot that the fellows who put them in the fire were exhumed just by opening the door. And they get those guys out, and I think it's a miracle upon a miracle that happens here. It says they didn't even smell like smoke. You know? Amazing. Hadn't been touched. Nothing. They were protected. God came down, protected them. He said, there's those men of conviction. What happens then? Revival comes to the land because they were men of conviction and character and conscience. You know, here's, here's what's significant. Don't ever forget this. These guys were now men of influence because of Daniel's leadership. They had everything they needed to live a comfortable life. They could have compromised. It would have been convenient to just go with the flow and go with the culture. God chose to use their willingness to stand by their convictions to change their world, to change the climate, to change the culture, to influence it for the kingdom. You know, there are a whole lot of other guys who marched out of Israel during this time of captivity, but it's interesting that the only ones we remember, the only ones the scripture tells us of, are these guys. Because these were the men again, who are willing to stand by their conviction. Well, let me share this with you in closing. You know what the greatest tragedy of being a man or woman of preference rather than a man or woman of conviction is? The greatest tragedy is not that you'll ruin your life, although you will. When you look at the end of the book of Philippians, the last chapter of James, it describes that. It's the same thing whether you're a believer or not. No difference. If you continue to compromise and if you continue to disobey God, the ultimate end of that life is destruction. But that's not the worst thing that could happen. And the worst thing about being a man or woman of preference rather than a man or woman of conviction is not that you could ruin your marriage and lose your marriage. You probably will for just as God has a will and God has a plan for your marriage and your family, so does Satan to destroy, to undermine, to break apart. His purpose, his goal is to destroy that marriage. And as you and I continue to compromise and sit here and say, amen, praise the Lord, good message, pastor, and we refuse to do it, as we get in that cycle over and over again and move further and further away from what God has for us, eventually that will take its toll on your marriage. But that's not the worst thing. And even though... A man or woman of preference rather than conviction will ultimately destroy and ruin and have a negative influence upon their children whom they love so much, even though that will probably happen because, you see, parents, let me ask you a question. Where are your children going to see 
the model and an illustration of someone who stands for what they believe even when they lose something. And when they'll hear about it in church, they'll hear about it certainly, but where would they see it? Where would they see it? Don't expect our children to exhibit more faithfulness, more consistency, more conviction than we exhibit. Simply shouldn't expect it. But there's something far worse than that, and that's this. Far worse than all those things. Is that until you and I allow God to move us out of the convenience of preferences into the mode of sacrifice where we have convictions, until we allow God to do this in our lives, we miss out on ever being fully used by God. And that's the worst thing that could happen. We say, what do you mean, Rick? God, God can't use me. I don't know. I don't know. What am I missing out on, you might say? I don't know. The answer to that question is this. We don't know. <laughs> Daniel did not know. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego did not know the rest of the story. They didn't know what else God had planned for them in their lives, the purpose he had set out for them, the plan he had set out for them. They did not know. All they knew was, They had to make a decision, and they chose to go with their convictions rather than to be men of preference and go and compromise. They had no idea how God was going to use them. And my friend, you have no idea how God wants to use your life. But I can assure you of this as I assure myself, that the moment I operate out of that convenience mode of preference as opposed to being a man willing to sacrifice my own desires and willing to be a man of conviction, at that moment I short-circuit what God wants to do in my life. I think if we took a poll this morning, none of us would say we want that, do we? None of us. We want God to use us fully. We want to see what God can do in our lives. We want to live in such a way that, God, we can't do this unless you show up. To live our lives in such a way that, It's next to impossible. With you, God, it is possible. So I don't know what's at stake in your life this morning. What might seem like a a small issue now, who knows in light of eternity what it might be. I I don't know in this room what God wants to do with this this congregation and with your life and, and with my life. But we don't know, but we can see that. We have far more to lose by compromising than we ever have to gain. And that we have far more to gain by standing for our convictions than compromising. Daniel did not know. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego did not know. Are you a man or woman of preference or a man or woman of conviction today? Some are here this morning say, you know, I really want to be that man, that woman of conviction For you, it might just be to make just a step in that direction today. Just to begin to turn that way. Allow the Heavenly Father to work in your life. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal where in your life that you just simply have preferences. Those things you're willing to compromise on. And ask Him to give you the strength to be that man, that woman of conviction, of consistency, of character, of integrity. And watch how He uses your life 
in a ways that you could never imagine. He wants to do far more, Paul says, than we could ever imagine or think. He's willing and able to do that. We have a culture around us that is sickening, a culture that's on a slippery slope, a culture that is need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If anything else, we need to be convicted about how we can go out and live out the gospel, live out the love, live out the light, let others see Jesus in us, introduce people to the Savior. And it's so easy here in the, we're really in the Bible belt, as we call it. Someone might say we're in the buckle of the Bible belt, probably true. But it's so easy to just assume that other folk are right with God or other folk don't need Jesus or other folk already know him. I don't know. But God has a plan. He wants to use each and every one of us. And he's just waiting on you and I to say we're all in. We're going to be men. We're going to be women of conviction, character, consistency, and integrity. May God help us, help us to do that. Let me pray with you this morning. Lord, thank you for your presence in this place today. Thank you for reminding us in this word, in your word, again, of this powerful story. It's really happened. That you, you looked down and found those men who stood by the stuff, who stood by their convictions. Even though they were outnumbered, even though it was unpopular, they stood tall and even were willing to die. Lord, may we be men and women of conviction. May you move us from our convenience of preferences towards this mode of being sacrifice-oriented. Lord, may our children see as parents in us a renewed commitment to follow you, to serve you. Lord, may not just the mental and verbal assent we give this morning stay here in this room, but may it go out the door with us. May we live it out. Lord, may it be real in our marriages. May it be real in our family. May it be real in our prayer life. May it be real in our sharing of the gospel. May we never, Lord, short circuit what you want to do in our lives. I not miss it. So I ask you, Lord, and your Holy Spirit to move in this room this morning and speak to hearts and challenge us to respond as you always do in worship. It's in your name we pray.